You're listening to the Sill Podcast, perspectives on art and technology with Peter Noche and Harry Posner. Episode 37, Inventiveness. So, what else is new? How have you been inventive in marketing Hockley Valley Coffee? We joke around here on this podcast. That's my way of kind of letting people know without pushing it into their face. <laughs> the product kind of speaks for itself. Once people taste it, enjoy it, I really don't have much else to do other than provide it for them. <laughs> and cut Hockley Valley. <laughs> so I haven't had to be inventive at all. Right. We're talking about actual inventiveness today. But seriously. Uh, yeah. What's involved in inventiveness? Uh, how do we foster it? What are some incredible examples of it? That sort of thing. Well, fostering inventiveness to me, first of all, you have to foster the whole educational process, the whole system that allows people to express themselves freely, think freely, not be confined to our standard memorization or fact-based kind of systems mm -hmm. that, as we discussed in our last podcast, were set up primarily to create consumers and workers. We're talking about a much broader spectrum here. Yeah. The freedom to fail, freedom yeah. to explore. Yeah. So those two things there, freedom to fail and freedom to explore, involve courage in the face of possible failure and imagination. And confidence. And confidence to go after it, whatever the it mm -hmm. is. And those are all right? prerequisites to inventiveness. Yeah. And a certain degree of luck, too, at times. As we know, oh, many absolutely. inventions came out of a fortuitous moment, whether it's the apple falling on Newton's head. And discovery know, of gravity. And, and, yeah, the theory of gravity. Whether it's uh, a burr sticking to the pants of uh, Georges de Mistral in 1940 in Switzerland. Switzerland. Yeah, a burr on his pants. And out of that comes the idea of Velcro. Mm -hmm. you know? And what an invention that was. Yeah. So inventiveness in the moment. And as you've pointed out too, you have to be open to catch those lucky moments and do something with them. And then there are those accidental inventions from looking for one thing and finding another. Someone invented radar, and from radar, they invented microwaves. Right, interesting. And both of those things coming out of, well, radar anyway, coming out of war. Mm -hmm. So we talked about, in our preliminary discussion before this podcast, we talked about necessity being the mother of invention mm -hmm. is one aspect of inventiveness. One aspect. Right, where we, where oh. we create something to deal with an issue. Yes, right. and the best example of that is war. Yeah. Civil War, Second World War, a lot of inventions not only are, are born, but they're accelerated. Improvements in trains, locomotion, in airplanes, mm -hmm. out of war. Scientific yeah. technology, where the objective is to outgun, outmaneuver the opposition. Right down to creating the Autobahn. Eisenhower, when he was over there during the Second World War, his observation upon his troops going through Germany when he encountered the Autobahn came back to the U.S. following the war as president. He really pushed for the road networks mm -hmm. on the ideas that were propelled by him 
observing and being on and analyzing the actual Autobahn, which was also used for military purposes during the war for uh, Hitler to move his troops. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So all of those physical things, and we could talk, for example, about uh, Leonardo da Vinci, mm. the consummate Renaissance man, mm-hmm. artist, inventor, an incredible inventive mind, product of the Italian Renaissance, Renaissance you yeah. know, uh, painter, brilliant painter and an inventor of many things way ahead of his time, like the anemometer, a device for measuring wind speed, speed you know, yeah. his flying machines. You see his notebooks. And Submarines. You see helicopters. helicopters. Uh, armored cars. The idea of what an ideal city should look like. Uh, robotic knights. K-N-I-G-H-T, Robotic Knights. He created a robotic And while knight. you're talking about that, really that's a personification of or the profiles that many inventors have. is this open-ended ability and desire to explore beyond their own realms. They don't limit themselves to any one realm if their whims take them there. And then they bring all of those faculties to bear on the issue. So studies have shown that creative geniuses are using all parts of their brain mm-hmm. in solving problems, and not, just right. one, not just one part. Mm-hmm. Right, so it's really uh, involving yourself completely and fully in the the challenge at hand, and really it emanates right from birth. The children are just naturally curious; mm-hmm. they naturally wish to explore things. Of course, as we grow into adults, uh, a lot of the things we run into begin to limit us because of the structures that we grew up in, or other adults that say mm-hmm. you can't do this or you can't do that. But a child, in their natural element, will willingly. Explore. Sure. Was it Einstein who said, I'm just passionately curious? Yep. He said, I'm not uh, that talented. He said, I'm just passionately, passionately curious. Passionately curious. And then this thing about children, too. Children are kind of preconceptual. Mm-hmm. They don't have a lot of concepts in them. Right. And it's with the learning of concepts that the child starts to fall away from the imaginative mind and move more towards the world of forms, of systems, mm-hmm. and more kind of rigid ways of seeing the world. And yet, concepts are the very things you have to be able to break to be a good inventor. Well, yeah, sure. Absolutely. You have to know what's going on. As you say, you need knowledge mm-hmm. before you can actually create something new out of that knowledge. You need to construct before you deconstruct. take a great jazz musician. A jazz musician isn't just farting around with the notes and the melody. That jazz musician has an intimate understanding of that basic melodic line, Mm. right? And then out of that... Often unbeknownst to everyone else listening to it. Yeah. And then their own natural musical talent Mm -hmm. is brought into it. And then their ability to free themselves up from taking any particular direction, allowing something in them to move them in whatever direction it feels like Mm -hmm. they feel like going. Um, Keith Jarrett's concerts, sometimes one hour, two hours long of complete improvisation. It's really stunning. From the get-go? From the get-go. I've never complete. seen one. Oh, it's, it, listen to the Koln concert, K-O-L-N. W- what are concert. the primary instruments, if there are any? For him, it's piano. It's all about the mind being free to explore. Flexible. Passion, flexible, passionately curious, open, preconceptual in many ways, almost pre-rational in many ways. Mm-hmm. And yet, as I discovered when I was exploring this idea on the internet, yeah. the great geniuses had their own idols that they worshipped, their mentors that helped them 
work their talent to a high level. Yeah, that's interesting. You know? Describe a little bit more about that. It showed these great geniuses in a kind of a pie chart. And oh. radiating out from them are these lines going to the idols they had, the people who came before, to their contemporary competitors in their field, to their mentors, to their future idolizers, the people who came after them, to show that the geniuses, the creative innovators, are not working in a silo but are connected intimately to the world they live in and are part of a kind of lineage almost. Newton saw it as his work being on the shoulders of giants That's that right. came before him. That's right. So nothing is created in a vacuum. Speaking of vacuum, mm. <laughs> the, the origination of the vacuum machine, and we thought, oh, 1920s, and it turns out it was 1860s. 60s, something? the original concept. Yeah. But it didn't get uh, motorized or mechanized until the early 1900s. That's right. right. That's right. I wonder what the motivation for that was. I think it was trying to make sweeping more efficient. Yeah, maybe. In you the know, first... because when you're sweeping, everything's going up all over the place. It's not right. like you're just moving it from one spot to the other, but it's filtering up into the atmosphere or into your room. Right. Whereas the vacuum is removing it altogether. Some genius thought, if you can suck this stuff up, right. it won't go everywhere. The discovery, for example, of gunpowder. Mm -hmm. Chinese. Something back in ancient Chinese alchemy. The Taoists were messing around with these substances, and they discover gunpowder. It's one of the four great inventions, apparently, that's come out of China. Just in the field of gastronomy, imagine how many foods came out of accidental mm. practices. Like when the peanut butter falls into the chocolate. Or that somebody says, and, let's try a snail for dinner. <laughs> and Dr. Hershey says, yeah. oh, this could be a good little chocolate bar, yeah, peanut yeah. butter and chocolate. Yeah, yeah. Uh, or the snails, as you put it. Yeah, yeah um, fortuitous stuff like that happens. And also just great minds, gastronomic minds, creating new combinations of foods. And also kudos to those who gave up their lives to let us know which foods we couldn't eat. <laughs> The Mikeys out there, <laughs> the late Mikeys. Yeah. Now, I think we also have to make a distinction between innovation yeah. and inventiveness. Innovation being improving upon what's already been created right. and inventiveness really making something quite new mm -hmm. out of it. And I think I talked to you earlier about how I think it's a natural function of the human being to seek novelty. Mm -hmm. Stimulation. And you know, when you use that example, if you do some quick research, you'll find that the great majority of known worldwide inventions originated in the States. Mm. But a lot of innovations were created outside. So they yeah. were using that foundation. Well, like Japan, for example. Japan, the automotive the, the industry. Miniatur and the miniaturization mm -hmm. of things. And that the Japanese took that and became experts at it and made things much smaller. Right. And then there are countries like China who make excellent copies. Mm-hmm. Right. Box, box. So, what's your story? Speaking of inventiveness, in a recent phone conversation, local jazz musician and owner of Kurtz Millworks, Larry Kurtz, recalled a bit of his story. The inventiveness you had was really born out of your passion. Right. I would say so for sure. In around uh, 1999, I was uh, starting to promote shows in Orangeville. I was going down to Toronto and seeing all my favorite bands and thought, wouldn't it be great if we could start to see some of these uh, bands performing up in Orangeville? Mm -hmm. So 
I started to work with a local club, which was the Mad Hatter at the time, in its old location downtown, and I would book a band, so I contacted bands that I already knew some of the musicians, being that I was a musician myself, but I had not really promoted too many shows, so I just uh, hired a band, and I printed tickets, I phoned the newspaper, and basically explained what I was doing, told them all about the band. I kind of submitted a story to them, which they printed nearly word for word. Then I physically built a wooden stage, brought it into the club, set it up, hired a friend of mine to do the sound, and uh, my musical partner Bruce and I were the opening act, and uh, we, on the first show, sold it out, which was a good thing and a bad thing because it was very encouraging, but sort of spoiled us because that doesn't happen every time you put on a show. But it was really cool because everybody really enjoyed it and the format worked. We sold a ticket and we uh, had a really good crowd and people were enthusiastic about coming out to see some live music. Orangeville's very own Larry Kurtz, founder of the Orangeville Blues and Jazz Festival. Box, box. In the world of arts, for example, we talked about taking concepts and kind of becoming childlike with them, which mm-hmm. means kind of teasing them apart or creating a world that's kind of preconceptual in feeling. So I'm going to give you the example of Gertrude Stein, okay. a writer from the 1920s, 30s. She was famous for having these literary and art salons in her house oh. in the 1930s, I believe it was, mm-hmm. or 20s, perhaps, if I'm not mistaken. And people like, you know, Matisse and Picasso and all these incredible artists would gather there. Yeah. Um, but she herself was an innovator and an inventor in language, in the world of language. So she might write a book that sounds something like this. Okay, this is not her. This is what it kind of sounds like to me. You're paraphrasing. I'm paraphrasing in a way. It's like this. It goes kind of like a cow is now, a cow is now and then a cow. A cow is then and now and now a cow. And then and then a cow is now and then a cow is then. A cow is. A cow is then. And on and on this would go. Is that how they got... How now, brown cow? <laughs> it could be. It could very well be. Well, she is the one where a rose is a rose is a rose. That's, uh-huh. that's Gertrude okay. Stein. Right? Right. But what I'm getting at is that writing, although it sounds a bit nonsensical, is kind of pre-rational, pre-conceptual. It's not determined by the words and the meaning of the words, but more the rhythm of the words, the sound of the words. It's a bit like kind of jazzy music mm-hmm. than it is prose writing. Yep. But it's very innovative for its time. People didn't know what the hell to do with it, and we still don't know a lot what the hell to do with it. It's kind of like uh, adding melody to words. Yeah, finding the intrinsic rhythms in language. Which is also why some languages are considered very mellifluous, as they say. It has that kind of tone to it. Yeah, and in a way, she was kind of taking the mortar out of the bricking so Mm. that the bricks would kind of fall into these jumbles and these kind of weird angles to each other, unrelated in a way. To the original form. Yeah, but still they're bricks and they're forms. Mm -hmm. And we recognize them as such, cow, now, then. These are bricks. And Mm -hmm. she was just playing with those bricks in a very interesting way. So very innovative. World of comedy. Robin Williams being the prime example of brilliance in a comedic mind with its sheer speed was blinding. 
disorienting almost. He was so quick, so inventive that people were just blown away by him. I was mesmerized by his ad-lib capability. Zany, but he was right on a lot of things. It's just, it's just yeah. that his mind was going to areas where you were just catching up. Well, he was very intelligent in his own mm-hmm. way and able to... I think most good comics are. Yeah, I think they have to be. And able to juxtapose certain things together which seem incongruous and unusual and, and right. therefore funny. And he was a master at that. When he was asked how his mind actually works on an episode of Inside the Actor's Studio, mm. he got up and did like 10 minutes of spontaneous comedy, which just blew people away. And he said, well, I guess I didn't really say what was going on in my mind, but I kind of explored it in the moment. So he explored in the moment like no one else could do. He went out there and did it without worrying about public ridicule or that he would risk not getting a laugh, which would be a comedian's nightmare. Yeah. When you do that, I remember the same thing with Steve Martin, same idea. Mm-hmm. I mean, what guy would come onto a Johnny Carson stage, literally <laughs> take a handful of spoons and knives, say he's doing a magic trick, then just thrash him behind his body, and then put up his hands and go, ta-da! I mean, who would risk that? That that would be funny. Yeah, so there's the courage involved in inventiveness. Oh, a lot of On courage. the stage. The courage and intelligence. You know, you talked about intelligence. Well, the intelligence is acquired knowledge as well as skill. It's a lifetime of accumulative factors, years of life experience, exposure, et cetera, et cetera. And then suddenly, boom, you now have a wonderful resource of material. Yep. Much like we're using the internet today. Yeah, yeah. Plus the natural talent that's there. Exactly. Augmenting it. Um, But you do need the base information, whatever it is that you're working on, the history behind it, the accumulated wisdom yeah. is what allows the inventiveness to flourish. I also think a form of obsessiveness has to be there too. Mm-hmm. And I think of autistic kids whom I've worked with before mm. and how they often focus on a particular subject and get obsessed with it, whether it's deep sea fish or bows and arrows or whatever it is, mm-hmm. whatever subject, they dive deep into it, read everything there is to read about it and are obsessed with it. And it's out of that kind of obsession that innovation can happen because you're so familiar with the subject matter that you can become fluid with it. And you've taught them, right? You've taught them a few times. Yeah, I've done creative writing workshops. Right. How did you find that experience? Uh, It was brilliant because they're unafraid to, well, they might say that they're compelled to speak when they're when it's least expected and to do things that are unexpected in a social situation that's what kind of autism is supposed to be about which some of of us will say is socially awkward yeah so inappropriate social behaviors let's say but that's actually part of being inventive Mm -hmm. is the courage to do something that's out there that other people wouldn't do and, and explore and experience and out of that can come really interesting novel ideas and things. And so these kids came up with incredible stories and poetry and drawings. It was just, it was marvelous to behold that. So the very things that compel them or that give them this open freedom are the very same things that sometimes we socially suppress. That's right. Yeah. There's also inventiveness in terms of large social issues, certain movements like the environment So there's two elements to this. For example, the idea of Gaia, and Gaia is ancient Greek earth goddess, if you like. Spell that. G-A-I-A. And someone, I'm not sure who in the modern world, took that idea up and said, let's actually 
Think about the planet as a living being, as a living entity. Okay. In the same way that the ancient Greeks thought of it as this goddess. Let's give it its reality as a living entity and treat it as such, which would mean a whole different attitude towards the planet if you take that seriously. And then beyond that, in the 1960s, 62, I think it was, Rachel Carson writes a book called Silent Spring, which really... the environment? Yeah, which really puts the uh, feet in the fire and talks about the danger of this world of ours in disintegrating in terms of the environment Mm. and our responsibility in that regard, what could result. Pretty prophetic for 1962. In some ways, she's at the beginnings of the environmental movement, Mm -hmm. inventing, in a way... The movement by having the courage to write this book. Draw attention to all these things. Yeah, yeah. So movements are created. Even religions are created. You think L. Ron Hubbard didn't create Mm -hmm. Dianetics? He created that religion, essentially. And it's still around to this day. (laughs) So inventive... Oh, and inventiveness can be used in very negative ways. Absolutely. Well, you just kind of... Some would argue that... Many would. Many would perceive it as negative. But you could talk about uh, the inventiveness of the criminal mind. Absolutely. Same technology we think we're flourishing by. They're flourishing even more, using it against us. Hacking. Yeah, security issues on the internet. Yeah, how to be a better liar. (laughs) There are people who invent new ways of lying. Mm Mm-hmm. And then beyond that, you have people who are living on the streets and have to find inventive ways of living day to day. Surviving. Of getting to the next meal, of mm-hmm. finding the next shelter if they don't have one. Yeah. And their lives are kind of caught up in having to be inventive in that way every mm-hmm. day. And think of yourself uh, growing up, either as a child or a young adult. Think of the things that you did in your daily existence where you were either alone or with a group of friends and you were in situations... Can you think of any situations where you use your general knowledge or scientific know-how or whatever it might have been that you actually applied it in a situation to get yourself out of trouble? Well, I applied it in a different way when I saw that there were other people getting themselves into trouble. Hmm. So, for example, I was on a streetcar in Toronto many years ago, Mm -hmm. uh, sitting near the back, and about halfway up the car, two people were starting to argue with each other, and it was getting more and more heated. And I could see and feel the tension growing and growing, and Mm -hmm. that this thing was going to be violent. So I decided I had to intervene. I just wanted to somehow diffuse this. Diffuse it, yeah. So I walked down the aisle and I accidentally on purpose dropped my transfer on the floor between them. So I had to stop in between them and reach down and pick my transfer up. And I picked it up and I looked at one. I said, oh, I'm sorry. Sorry to interrupt. Sorry. And looked at the other. I'm sorry. Sorry. And then walked through. Mm-hmm. And that was enough to break the energy bubble that was getting bigger and bigger and more electric. And so... Being creative in that way and inventive was something I found in the moment to do. I found similar things in physical activity, Hmm. found similar connections. I would often relate the things that I learned in the classroom regarding physics or chemistry. I would apply them to what I was actually doing. Homemade bombs, that kind of thing? No. (laughs) (laughs) Not homemade bombs, but certainly as a kid, you know, making slingshots and bow and arrows, understanding trajectory. Boomerangs? Wind wind speeds. I I have to admit, I did attempt a boomerang. I couldn't quite figure. Yeah, because that boomerang always fascinated me. Sure. Uh, As an invention? The design, yeah, yeah. 
But even other things, like when I was playing some sport, I would recall some formula or something that was related to momentum or force or <laughs> acceleration. And I would actually try to apply it, often unsuccessfully. But I would think, I'm about to try jumping in this creek. And I, uh-oh, I better pick up some speed here because I don't think I'm going to be able to cross that six feet. So right. but knowing that if I can increase my speed, I could throw myself a little further. You know, of course, <laughs> if it didn't go well, you ended up against the tree and uh, whatever. But, right. you know, in that right. moment, sometimes it was literally uh, the difference between injury and non-injury or, uh, in the case of failure, catastrophic yeah. finishes. But I found that I did that a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, really overall, if we're going to sum this up in some way, we need to talk about the fact that it doesn't matter when we live in the world, Mm -hmm. what time frame we're in, there are always going to be obstacles that require a certain kind of inventiveness to get over inventive, creative solutions too, and not the same old, same old. Exactly. So the more we can foster inventiveness in our young people, Mm-hmm. through school especially, the more creative we'll be as a society. And right, right now, as you know, what's happening politically, economically around the world, we face huge challenges that way, and we really have to rethink our whole system. Yeah, uh, even international diplomacy mm-hmm. and all that. There's creativity that can be brought to bear and inventiveness in every single area Absolutely. of our lives. Absolutely, and a perfect right. example that totally aligns with your streetcar description about coming between two forces that are diametrically opposed and in high state of conflict. Yeah, yeah. And finding ways to diffuse situations like that so that at least people can begin to communicate yeah. and find alternate solutions that don't have destructive ends. Creative mediation mm-hmm. uh, at the personal level and at the international level is we need more of that. For and every sure. day in the workplace, you yeah. know, teaching managers how to handle team players and vice mm. versa. Really just making it a more palatable environment for everyone to flourish. Yeah. So Equally important is the qualities to avoid, punishing failure, discouraging challenge, Mm -hmm. centering learning experiences on the rote and routine. Right, right. I think I mentioned earlier in the podcast that I think we, as human beings, we are naturally curious, curious, naturally drawn to novelty and stimulation. But as you say, I mean, in a world of overstimulation, Mm. in order to be inventive these days, you have to get that stimulation out of your mind because it's overwhelming and find quietness and Mm. silence out of which new things can emerge. Otherwise, it just gets filled up with all the nonsense that's out there on the internet, etc. The Sill Podcast, Perspectives on Art and Technology, is a Connecting Dots Media production. Available at thesillpodcast.com. Thank you.